0: Welcome, everybody, to this week's uh, discussion on The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. We're in the live discussion chat for anybody who wants to join us. And um, I think we've already kind of pre-gamed this discussion in the ongoing discussion uh, chat room. And so far, we, we've sort of gone between ethics, happiness, um, social symbols, social construction, and um, the performative nature of uh, some of those constructions. So we've done a lot of interesting analysis already. Um, And with that, I feel like I don't really have to say too much about the tets. Um, I just want to note that I thought that it was interesting that this text is written sort of like retrospectively or in the sense that... um, the narrator seems to be talking to pe- talking to um, a contemporary about a society that used to be called, um, at least I'm pronouncing it, uh, Omalas. So I, I thought that was an interesting narrative device. Um, but with that, uh, I'd like to go right into the floor and, and hear from you guys. What did you, what stuck with you about this text?
1: Uh, I think the first time I ever read this was in like a legal studies class in undergraduate. Um, that was about a couple of years ago. So it was cool to really quickly uh, reread it and sort of deal with the, the paradox again. I, unfortunately, I do not remember what was said about it in the context of that legal studies class. Uh, did not do a very good job paying attention to that class, unfortunately.
0: Well, we won't dock you here. But that's really interesting that you would. Um, I think back to like my legal class. Uh, I only had one, but we we didn't read any literature or talk about ethics. So that's really like encouraging to hear.
1: I wish I could remember what class it was called. I think we read like Kant a little in there too. It was some of my exposure to that kind of, those concepts.
0: <laughs> Darn. Okay, so Alyosha needs a second to um, configure their microphone. But um, Musky, you, you brought up the paradox in, in the, uh, the story. Could you tell us a little bit more about the paradox you found?
1: I guess the... Um, I was thinking about the that sort of... Uh, the child that's trapped in the broom closet, right? Um, and it's there in the text in that, I guess, sort of plot like that but it's also there in like sentences uh, sentences like oh shit I can't hold control and scroll at the same time uh, yeah we have a bad habit of considering ha- happiness as something stupid uh, we praise despair is to condemn delight things like that which seem to be at odds with the idea of torturing someone to keep everyone else happy
0: I didn't think you were going to go for that passage, but that's a really good one, too, because um, there is a strange paradox there, right? In terms of like how we deal with happiness and like, um, I think like uh, pain and all that in terms of I can find it. The banality. Here we go. This is the treason of the artist a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. Right. Which seems to get into like a paradoxical point about this text.
1: Yeah, that's just what jumped out at me in this read. Uh, Like, it's been years since I've looked at this, but sentences like that, which seem to be like, like, I don't I don't know if the narrator. Like, I think Le Guin is being purposely ironic, but this sort of fictional narrator, like, I don't know if that narrator is aware of the like irony that when they say that and that's an interesting sort of tension.
2: Can you hear me? Yes. Hooray. Um, yeah, I was going to, I uh, was said in the chat, Arendt, you know, that's very clear. It feels like reference to Arendt and the banality of evil that she writes about in Eichmann in Jerusalem, um, which I think that's a theme we can definitely talk about. I, I just wanted to say at the beginning, I'd heard of this story before. I'd actually heard it recounted specifically in a documentary about Ursula Le Guin that uh, I don't remember the name, but I saw it screened live here in London a few years ago. And it was a great little uh, moment in the in the film because they they teach it to a group of high school students, I believe, or like middle school, and they uh, they ask all the kids afterwards what they think. And there's, I mean, it's it, the film kind of goes heavy on you know Ursula Le Guin's political principles and you know being part of anti racist movements and civil rights and all the rest of it. And I, I thought the optics was quite funny because you have a, it's a class somewhere in the U.S. and it's mostly kids of color and there's this one white kid they interview. And when I ask the kids, you know, what would you do? Would you be one of the ones who walked away? Or would you, you know, would you condone this? Just by coincidence, probably. But the way it looks, <laughs> every single kid of color says, oh, yeah, man, no, that's, that's horrible. That sounds like a, I can't imagine doing that. I'd have to walk away. And the one white kid is like, oh, yeah, keep them in the closet. Yeah, totally. Just stick them in there. That's what we got to do, right? Happiness for everyone. <laughs> But uh, I do think it's quite, it's an interesting story because it is kind of, out of all the stuff we've read, probably the most allegorical, like explicitly allegorical, maybe a bit more straightforward.
3: But I think there's a lot of cool themes in here to discuss.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that story you told. Um, I gotta say, it must <laughs> really kind of surreal to see, like, to see, like... Um, that, like you said, the optics of that reaction, and like, you know, like uh, people from a, a kind of minority, right, being part of the people who would walk away and then, you know, the um, the white kid, right, somebody part of the majority being like, oh, no, this actually like kind of made sense to me, right? Like this this sounds like, I don't know if the kid was thinking this, but this sounds like utilitarianism, right? Um, maybe that's a good place to move further into. So, as, as I understand it, utilitarianism, at least in, in its most famous regard, is like uh, the idea that there's this ratio between optimal happiness and maximization of population. And that um, whether or not you're, you know, wherever you figure in those two sides isn't really. Um, the main thing, right? The main thing is how your actions can contribute to the optimal happy, to the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest amount of people, as Bentham says. Right? And that's a very old notion of ethics that um, I think we talked a little bit about in terms of Kafka earlier on. But this is a really interesting presentation of it. Um, what do you guys make of this kind of? at least that element of ethics here? Does this seem like happiness? Um, Or like, um, to Alyosha's point, like, where, you know, where might you find yourself here? Would you be thinking about walking away? Or would you like, would you you continue to to be a part of the society?
2: I mean, I think it's, the the end part is kind of the most beautiful when they describe what it means to walk away from MLS because she kind of is, you know, she's describing becoming aware of the kind of the violence at the base of our society. If I was to come up with a, a bougie theory way of talking about it, I would pr- I'd think of Foucault's inversion is it in society must be defended. We talks about the, rather than uh, war being an ex- ex- extension of society by other means that society is an extension of war by other means, something like that, the inversion of Clausewitz. But, uh, you know that that there is no way, kind of, of like just slightly, you know, changing the situation and getting on with it. That it, to not be okay with this thing or to reject it is a fundamental, entire, like shift in your worldview. And the people who do it, she says, it's possible that the, you know, the place that they go towards isn't even imaginable or whether it even exists. They don't know, but they seem to know where they're going. The ones who walk away. So I thought that was interesting because. I do think it connects. I mean, she's writing in the, what, 74 or something like that. And we, we I think we know Le Guin's preoccupations with you know, her famous speech. Was it with the prize for literature where she talks about capitalism and whatnot? I think to, to me, it's sort of a, a very explicit allegory about that, you know, the, the being compromised in just modern society, that there's there's no way of ignoring the, the violence at the basis of any social formation and that to reject it would have to would imply something that we almost can't envision.
1: I really like that, uh, the, the violence at the basis of every social, there, that there is violence at the basis of every social formation and that something else is something that almost we can't envision.
0: It, it's interesting though, right? Because um, one thing that struck me about this society and, and um, I just sort of I just sort of like is um, really something I've been ruminating on is that um, everybody in this society is aware of this. So, right, like everybody knows that this kid is there and some people understand w- what's going on. Some people don't. Right. But this kind of utilitarianism is um Right, It's part of the social contract, and in that way, everybody at least has to be aware of this so nobody accidentally um, shows kindness to the, the tortured child. And so that's interesting, too, because um, I, I think what Alyosha said does, does resonate a lot with our societies today. But I would also pose the question... Um, do you guys agree with the Gwynn in this regard that we actually like, we are aware of what's going on?
3: Um, well, I'm curious what you mean by how aware, I mean, you know, I mean, you, and also I think when you bring up the question of awareness, you also, I mean, you know, you're not just bringing up the question of consciousness. You're also bringing up a question with regards to autonomy.
0: Yeah. And that's precisely the point because, um, that seems to be, and one of the, um, this was in the discussion um, during the week too, is like, right, kind of like, what do we do about this? So, like, if we all know this is going on, at least in this society, all the all all of the people of Omalus know about this. And, like, the one thing they do about it, it seems, is that they make an effort to treat their children better, um, which is fairly ironic in some ways, but... Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at is uh, in our society today, right? I think it's very fair to say this kind of thing is still around um, in in some ways, right? This kind of utilitarianism. Um, How much light do we actually give to the people who are in that role of suffering, uh, albeit suffering for a so-called greater good? I mean,
3: I think the problem arises in... Uh, defining what the greater good is, you
1: know? Yeah, I was going to say something like it's a little more clear cut in a a story like this where the it's so allegorical. It has that like little bit of a flattening effect. You know, I think obviously all of us are uncomfortable about the realities of production, but because of that, that terror is sort of like more diffuse and like harder to know than it is like a body trapped in a closet that it's being like, abused in front and in vit- like that's the other thing too like you can go and you are encouraged to go look at this person be abused with your face and you you know it's that there's a no ability thing i think
0: yeah and that's kind of how uh the narrator conveys to the audience that this is real right is the narrator constantly says like but to you still don't believe me about how happy this society is or how great it is here, do you? Maybe this will convince you. And then the narrator moves into the um, the torture of the child to perpetuate the model. And then all of a sudden it's believable. Or at least she, I, I believe the narrator comments something the effect, almost rhetorically, um, giving a rhetorical question, something in the effect of, now do you believe me? Right now is it believable? Yeah, you're right.
1: I think that's really good.
2: But I think it also, what I really like about this is that it kind of, you know, everyone's coming to it further with their own biases and background here. I mean, it makes me think a lot about, even in discussions of people, you know, supposedly of the same camp, or, you know, I could say broadly on the left, for example, and what I would call authoritarians or tankies, there's this kind of way, or anyone, I mean, you could talk to liberals, neoliberals, conservatives, there's this way of like, talking about the calculus of happiness, like Jack said, which is all about sort of maximizing numbers and being like, well, you know, if, if this many people benefit from this, then it kind of, you know, who cares about camps? If, you know, Uyghurs are in camps, you know, socialism is being developed by 2050, <laughs> things like this. And I think what I like about stories like this are, you know, it's it, it sort of, it brings home just in a very obviously simplistic allegorical way, but it drives home the, just the radical individuality of a person's experience of pain, and that there's no way of kind of like, justifying or explaining it other than just accepting it for what it is, you know? And, and if, if your political calculus is, this person needs to suffer for this to happen, then that might be wrong, but they would almost be, I don't know, better intellectually to ad- admit that and, and then suffer the consequences of that position than to pretend that that's not the case. And yeah, I just think about how often we, I, there's a quote, I always misquote and paraphrase these guys, but it makes me think, I think it was Adorno, one of these guys who talked about <laughs> um, there's a the whole no poetry after Auschwitz thing that he went on about and I think he walked that back slightly later in his life but there was a, there's a line I wish I could find it where I believe he says something along the lines of to haggle over numbers is to already kind of miss the point you know because even at, in his era immediately after World War II there's all these sort of reactionary debates about. Well, how many Jews did die, and you know, and it wasn't just Jews; it was communists and these people. And he was sort of like to, to be haggling about the, the the numbers as though it's a sort of simplistic mathematical game, and not like the the radically, you know, horrifying experience of all these individual lives being snuffed out is to completely miss the point of of what suffering is. And even that makes me think about uh, Agamben writing about bare life as well but anyway now i'm going off on a tangent i just wanted to bring that stuff up
1: hmm. i think that stuff was super useful i think it points to i think what's difficult about this text for me is that this paradox is set up all right that there that that leguin sort of purposely collapses pain uh, like individual pain and collective uh, pleasure i guess and she's like look they're kind of the same thing um But then for me, it's like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Like this false distinction between these two sort of realities, or is it even a false distinction? Should I understand it as like one reality of this society that isn't, you know, that I'm not doing a service by splitting the pleasure of the many and the pain of the individual how am i supposed to navigate that is this like you know inherent to the logic of society in general and, and what are we supposed to do with this information now that we finish the story maybe even that becomes a little meta because i feel like i was almost referencing the idea of like walking away from the story like in the same way that the uh characters walk away at the end of the story
0: And that really is the bind of it all, right? Is like, that's why I'm shocked you read this in a law class, right? Is one thing that seems clear to me here is an implicit social contract. Actually, an explicit social contract where the narrator even says, these are the terms of the deal, right? Where you can't help the kid because to do so would be to break um, the terms and relinquish all happiness in society, right? It would be your fault um, for removing the overall happiness and that that's sort of like uh, Benthamite uh, it's almost Benthamite at like a utopic level right where it's somehow you actually did maximize happiness to uh, you know pass the, to the limit but uh, in that regard right like that is the bind is can we do we break the contract do we go along with the contract and you know, um, maybe like raise our kids with like a, a greater amount of compassion than we otherwise would because of that sacrifice child. So in that way, right, like give minorities uh, or, you know, whoever is the disadvantaged here, right, whoever has to suffer for the greater uh, happiness. Do we just like implicitly treat um, them better or more so treat, Members of the, the majority better, right? Because that seems to be more of Lequin's point. Is you don't even treat the minority better in this sense, but um, for the disadvantaged, or do you leave?
1: Yeah, and how do you leave, and what does leaving look like, and and on all those other questions. So I guess the the question of like whether or not you leave the society is maybe because I'm thinking about this nature of the pleasure that the collective is experiencing during the festival. And I guess if you think that that pleasure is somehow like not really pleasure, right? Because of the pain of that one individual, or if it is not the best kind of pleasure, maybe that is sort of an answer to that utilitarian calculus or the beginnings of one.
3: I think the the child in the cellar allows for the excess pleasure. You can you can purify your pleasure by having a scapegoat for all all the other f- feelings that would uh, intrude upon that.
1: So sort of like a, well, at least I'm not that that person <laughs> thing.
3: It's almost more than that. Um, you can disassociate those parts from yourself and place them in someone else. Um, I mean, it's it's a mind trick. It's mental gymnastics, but... Like... Uh, I mean, it is the scapegoat. Um, it is like a, a symbol for all the uh, taboo affectations. And so you can dump them all on this person and keep it underground that way above board you can have a uh, pure ecstatic experience that isn't tinged with the uh, natural you know, heterogeneity of human experience or quote unquote natural
1: so I guess then yeah that makes a lot of sense so, so it's the response like, uh, like alterity then right where you have to Everyone has to be heterogeneous. Everyone has to be, you know, that kind of radical alterity. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, you have to figure out what you've otherized, right? Um, And so we can bring this to our, uh, we can bring this to our culture and talk about, uh, like, the stereotypes imposed on uh, minority groups and in what are seemingly modern ghettos, and how they're policed. Like a lot of people will uh, will personalize their situation and say that they're in that situation because they behave so and so way and whatnot, and um, that allows you to enjoy your, uh, you know, uh, your pristine white suburbia because you've placed. All of these things, which are in fact a part of your behavior as well, into another group of sorts.
0: One one thing I'm picking up in your view, Ken, is that, and I think this is consistent with like even utilitarianism, is the people who aren't part of that like maximizing, um, the people who aren't in that group that get to maximize their ha- happiness, right? There's like an implicit sacrifice of them right they uh they're being traded off in a way to enable that other group
3: yeah that's about how i see it
0: yeah oh go ahead ken
3: i was just going to give an example an anecdotal example but i don't want to i hope it's helpful um i had this two-week class uh it was like a like a counseling theory class and um, it was like 20 people and there was one person through our classes who was like sharing intimate details about themselves and their pain and whatnot. And uh, instead of, uh, instead of being supported, I guess, um, In exploring themselves, this person became like a symbol for everyone else's uh, inferiorities, I guess. And they got ostracized precisely because they were bringing up painful experiences and stuff. And it was like this exact same dynamic where everyone finds like a container to hold the things that they don't want, you know, temporally in themselves.
0: that's interesting too to, to play off a point Bega uh, made in the chat and I think a point that, that resonates really well with the Quinn's test we might actually begin to wonder um, whether you want to call it a structure or a systematic factor or whether that's not a part of our um, our society at some level right in the same way that there's a social contract in, in OMA laws um, right it's not just the utilitarian aspect right there seems to be this this sort of like overarching agreement.
1: I, I, I'm sort of struck wondering, too, if it's like if it's a social thing, uh, it sort of gets a, a, a break between what's social and what's psychological. Right. Because in that example, what was really compelling to me was this sort of. Context of like a small group interaction, right? Like as much as it takes place in an institution, it sounds to me like it, this was a group of peers that were doing this to each other.
0: Yeah, and in some ways, the question I'm I'm kind of wondering there, and I don't want to I don't want to make. Uh, can go too far into his personal life or anything, but to, and and in this way, maybe to bring it back to the story for comparison's sake, or to compare it with like the societies we live in, right. Or with our peers, are there these kind of like, whether they're social contracts or not, are there these structures that maybe enable like uh, Ken is describing that enable this kind of like offloading. So as to, you know, as to enable that kind of, um, uh, it's sort of like a happiness principle to sort of a sacrifice of the other.
1: And dang it if that isn't a really like good question, because I don't know.
2: <laughs> isn't that kind of the, what alienation is, in a sense? I mean, and not, not, not that I can quote Marx like scripture or anything, but my sense of it is that that, that is kind of precisely what alienation does. To, you know, in Marx's uh, work, like the, the actual labor of the worker, but also to society itself, you know, being unable to actually access or address, you know, the, the immediacy of its existence and then having to kind of have it fed back to itself indirectly through processes of production that they have no control over, just sort of continually creating this indirect feedback. I mean, I think that in a way, and I'm, I'm again armchair theorizing here, but it seems to me like a lot of the initial stuff that Deleuze and Guattari were critiquing in our main group about early psychoanalysis is this kind of discovery that psychoanalysis has that oh this is hap- what this kind of process and production also happens in the unconscious, and then there's all the flourishing of that kind of discourse. But I do think yeah that there's something about just the nature of alienation. I'm looking at this paragraph here. Uh, I think on page three of the text where. It says, they all know it is there, all the people of Omelas. Some of them have come to see it. Others are content merely to know it is there. They all know that it has to be there. Some of them understand why and some do not. But they all understand that their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships, the health of their children, the wisdom of their scholars, the skill of their makers, even the abundance of their harvest and the kindly weathers of their skies depend wholly on the child's abominable misery. I think that, yeah, there's... I don't know exactly where I'm going with it, but I think there's something about alienation in modern society under capitalism that, whether completely consciously or subconsciously or <laughs> whatever's in the middle, there's some form of involvement and awareness of, you know, the what what this kind of structure of society, uh, what's the word, produces what it makes, you know, the the kind the kinds of labor the kinds of you know, disparities and inequalities and all the things that are required for it to exist. And really, they, you either have to kind of like be steeped in it to the point of depression, or you have to kind of make some kind of personal piece with it and explain to yourself why those things exist rather than, yeah, again, like we we're saying, because to reject them or to want to change them is almost to walk away from the society itself, you know.
0: Yeah, and Marx is a very nice example too, because you do have the structural feature of like, and this is one of the ironies, right? Where Marx will say like it's it's ironic that the majority of people are the people who are oppressed, right? So it's it's almost, um, in some ways, it seems to be an inversion of Bentham. Um, but at the same time, I think you're right that there is a structural feature to it too, where like. Right wages enable this to continue um, at a certain level, like consumerism enables it to continue. Is a sort certain, certain like ensconcing in, in of it. But I want to go back too, to that passage Muskie mentioned earlier in terms of paradox, and I, I think it it kind of speaks to what um, Alyosha was just talking about too. So when the narrator is trying to convince us that this society existed, right, because it is retrospective, when this society existed, we're not supposed to look on it um, as beneath us, right? So uh, Le Guin writes, yet I repeat that these were not simple folk, not dog shepherds, noble savages, bland utopians. They were not less complex than us. The trouble is that we have a bad habit, encouraged by pedants and sophisticates, of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual; only evil interesting. So, right, so far we're seeing that, like, on your first read-through, you're probably like, "Oh, I just can't imagine happiness, right?" Uh, And that you know, like, instead, I'm too focused on you know the pain of my society. Uh, which is an interesting narrative device here. She continues, This is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the boredom of pain. If you can't lick them, join them. If it hurts, repeat it. But to praise despair is to condemn delight. To embrace violence is to lose hold of everything else. We have almost lost hold. We can no longer describe a happy man, nor make any celebration of joy. Go ahead, Muskie.
1: I was just going to point out that last um, clause, uh, we can no, uh, nor make any celebration of joy, right? Which is kind of ironic considering what she's doing with this piece with just describing a festival and then pulling the rug out from under that festival. And then at the same time being like, well, boy, it sure sucks that no one can just enjoy happiness.
0: (laughs) Yeah, precisely. Right. And it's a way of saying like, instead, like the intellectual uh, sort of like interest is to focus on the suffering. Right. And, and, to deal with that and in some ways i think i could even speak to some of bentham's projects um although i don't want to pick on him Um, but that being said right there's also the irony of like if the artist does not admit the banality of evil or find pain boring right um if the artist doesn't uh repeat hurting themselves right what do what are they doing here
1: I'm reminded of that. uh, Someone I saw somewhere on the internet posted that quote from Deleuze about Kafka, where he's like, You're doing Kafka a disservice by talking about everything he writes as if it's sad because it's actually funny. Let me see if I can find the exact quote. But, But, like, that's the point I'm making by bringing that up, I think, is that, like, I think Le Guin is onto something that Kafka can write stories that are horrifying, right? Like, no one reads The Metamorphosis or The Trial and they're like, uh, you know, they think it's like lighthearted. But it is wrong to look at those stories and see them as only depressing or let like they weren't like a source of joy for Kafka. And I think that speaks to the kind of pedantry and the, the sort of disservice that Le Guin is talking about. And I think that there's a collapsing she's doing between those two sort of extremes that we tend to see as these sort of dual opposites of each other, right? Pleasure and pain. And she's sort of collapsing them. And
0: Well, here we might come to wonder, right? Um, if we take the narrator at their word here, why can't we understand happiness in this way, right? Why are we caught up in like the banality of evil and the um the terrible boredom of pain.
1: I'm not sure there's a good answer to that, but I do think it rests on the assumption that pain and pleasure are two different things. And I, I think that this text is challenging that.
0: yeah i think you're right and and one thing that struck me is the way that she's able to place all these different normative ethical theories in, in dialogue with each other and one of the things that struck me even about the pleasure and the pain um like that sounds to me like it reminds me of like the middle way so like aristotle the doctrine of the mean where instead of looking for a ratio between um collective happiness i'm sorry uh greatest possible happiness and collectivity you look for a ratio between something like pleasure and pain and that in there lies the the
1: virtue that's interesting i don't know much about that
0: Uh, here's your introduction to a criticism of it right
3: I know that yeah,
2: um sorry oh, go ahead no i was just gonna say I, I said it in the chat earlier that i think you know the, the, this we we could benefit from a kind of codian reading as well because i think the whole idea of you know the biggest flaw with all utilitarian arguments i feel is that you can immediately step back and say okay but you know how is this happiness and pain constructed you know where where does it come from and i think Foucaultian answer would obviously be power relations, you know, that there's no there's no kind of like unproblematic pre-existing idea or experience of happiness that people just feel that you can then point to and say, well, okay, so this is what we need to make sure more people feel this than this. And that, you know, these things are kind of I guess like you're saying Muskie, that that there's it would be foolish to separate pain and pleasure because and I guess in Foucault's rendering, that they are part of each other. You know, they're there and there are actual literal forms of pleasure that are directly, you know, premised on pain. But just that, you know. I think that we often come into the Star Trek problem. I think in this kind of thing where you get these these allegories that don't go far enough. I feel where you, you you do get people kind of stuck with the liberal intention of saying no, no, no. We don't want people to be unhappy, and we don't want anyone to be harmed. But you know, what do we do if this M class planet needs the the resources of this other M class planet? And what do we do? And I think yeah, there's there's a I think there's a more Subtle, but an obvious response of like, well, it's not a question of, of a pre-existing form of happiness that all these people it would be taken away from them if we somehow allowed the child to leave. It's that you know that this very kind of, I mean, shit. You could take a take a crude psychoanalytic angle, you know, that that this very kind of happiness that all these people experience is like a massive act of sublimation or kind of repression of this and of this basic thing that they know about and that. You know, I, I suppose you could hem and haw about it and say, you know, who's to say that's not real happiness? But I think it would be fairly easy to, to pick it apart and say, well, you know, what, what is a kind of... And that's, I think, what the story is doing. What, what is ha- a kind of happiness that is constructed around this, like, lacuna or this gap and, and pretending that it's not there? Is is that not a form of, uh, I don't know, of blissful ignorance? You know, anyway... I'm, I'm losing myself here, but I just thought that I'm thinking about history of sexuality in particular uh, when we're talking about happiness.
1: I think all that was pretty, pretty enlightening. And I wanted to bring up uh, possibly also as a dead end, but I'm pretty sure Ursula Le Guin translated, you know, the, the Tao. And I think that... A lot of this sort of collapsing of, a, of something that apparently is dual into something that is one but is confusing and purposely kind of you know vexing could be an influence from that
0: interesting connection um Begum, did you want to tell us more about uh, the, I think you call it like the, the, the sort of the sharing bonding aspect of suffering?
4: Yeah, uh, I just wanted to say that usually when we talk about history, especially about a nation's history, we talk about the wars or like who are we and who, who were them in the history and uh, in MLS the only person that is in pain is that child so the pain uh, is a this is discriminating in that sense so in in a in a different sense I feel like uh, sh- the author was trying to um, also uh, show us that we can bond our happiness but it still has a cost so, uh, when it's on only a child I don't Feel like it can have a, this child can have a history, so and we cannot have biases towards that child. So the pain is an abstract, and because of that, the pain is an abstract. the The whole other concepts in my eyes are also without any grounding too. So since we don't really understand why there's this pain we cannot really find a justification for it and thus we cannot really find a justification for happiness or like this social contract if there and if there if omelas has any history or etc so because that we cannot have a background of it we, we cannot really see if we cannot really situate omelas in anywhere i think
0: You know, one thing that strikes me about what you're saying, too, though, is um, I think my how I've been reading, how I've been thinking about this story up to your comment was it seems like they're united. Uh, the, the, Om- the Omala sites, the Omala site, the people of Omala's are united around like a kind of happiness, right, in distinction and almost separation from that child suffering. Uh, but your comments suggest to me too that actually what they're united, that what, what their union is, is the mutuality of um, their relationship to that child suffering, right? That's what holds them together. It's not their happiness, it's actually that child suffering.
4: I mean, it can be because. Um... Otherwise, I don't really see reason why they would like say that if that child was gone, then their happiness would be gone too. So maybe we, maybe we always. Ha- I, I'm not sure. Maybe this is why uh, Leguin says in the in the first paragraphs that they are happy but not simple. What we understand by simple is that they are happy for no reason. They have a reason to be happy. Is it because of the child? Like, What does she mean by that simple there?
0: Could you repeat the quote?
4: Uh, Yes, it is. They were not simple folk, you see, though they were happy. So they are not just blatantly uh, happy, like, Is there a reason for them to be happy? So do we need a reason to be happy? I mean, I don't know.
1: I think that's a great point, yeah. I think that the child being in pain gives them a reason to be happy, if only in comparison. But it does seem, at the same time, pretty arbitrary.
0: Yeah, and I like your point too, Begum, because um, Le Guin makes it really clear. These people are like at the pinnacle of their society, right? They can create a floating energy source. They can create like a fuelless gas. They're scholars, they're scientists, they're engineers. Like they don't have a stock market. You know, they they've pretty much reached like an apex, right? But to your point too, I, I like the way you said that. Do we need a reason to be happy?
2: I mean, I guess she says that specifically to transpose it, maybe to sort of counter what I was saying earlier as well, that she's trying to show that it's not just Plato's cave, I guess. That this isn't just a bunch of people who are happy in a childlike pre-civilization state. You know, she says the noble savage thing and all that, that that it's a kind of informed happiness that maybe they suppress this thing and you know the the people who see the child end up trying to like suppress their guilt and or justify it but that it it isn't it isn't the case that nobody knows why they this is because that would be a different allegory wouldn't it if it was this society is perfectly happy but nobody knows you know except one person or, or some outsider that this is the reason It's it's not that, it's that everyone does know and has to know and has to almost like reckon with it in order to, it seems like a rite of passage. She says that between eight and 12 years old, people are told. So I feel like the reason she puts that in there is to to make a distinction from like some kind of Adam and Eve, like Edenic pre-fall state where everything is perfect simply because people are blessed and ignorant of the larger world, like they've constructed in a way, every single person has a share in this crime, because they've kind of consciously or otherwise agreed to this state of affairs.
1: I like that. Uh, that get, gets in mind the idea that this isn't, this isn't just about you know the sort of cave thing, right? Where what's really moral, you know, instead of that, instead of looking for what is the essence of morality, it's pointing out this sort of construction, right? And that that gets at, I think, what the sort of that's not maybe arbitrary, that it's artificial. That the happiness of the collective might just be as might not actually, might be artificial, might be something constructed, right? It's not like, and maybe in that sense, it's less real. I'm not sure if I want to go that far, but I think getting at it in terms of this is a commentary on sort of the way that pleasure and pain are constructed in a society. And I think that that is interesting with the sort of meta text uh, sort of rhetoric that Le Guin is using.
2: I'm just writing in the chat again because of my biases. I'm I'm trying to use examples from the you know the Russian Civil War and the Soviets because I think it's it's a really it's a it's a very poignant historical moment of this kind of logic and rhetoric. I was saying that the examples of the uh, grain requisitioning from different parts of the, the Soviet Union to be sent to other parts and the widespread peasant rebellions at that time that had to be re- suppressed into the 20s the 1920s. Of like you could, I mean, you can think about that. Of like, and if you're trying to think about how happiness can be constructed, you know, if, you, if your village, be, because of lack, you know, in that Deleuzean sense, being inserted into the situation, and now there's not a lot of resources and you need food, and there's another place that the food is going to be taken from and given to you, thereby screwing over that group, but helping you, you know, in, in a very direct sense, your happiness is is constructed, it's, it's uh, completely contingent on this other other person's you know experience of pain and possibly death um but you know that's so, so you could feel that that elation at the grain trucks the the train of grains arriving and think oh finally my family's gonna get to eat but it's not i i wonder if i guess the reason i'm bringing it up is just to think uh not just in an abstract sense about how is our happiness you know contingent but that you know i think in a quite literal sense it's contingent on you know,
0: circumstance. Yeah, in some ways, the nice thing about social construction theory is that right? if it's socially constructive, that means there's actually hope that we can change it, right? It's not an immutable essence. It's something in the society with us. But um, I wanted to expand on that. Uh, Alyosha, your point about the, the allegory of the cave, you could walk this out further. And, um, and actually, in the same text, the Republic, Plato talks about constructing a society and um, something called the noble lie, where uh, where the society will be lied to. I can't quite remember the parameters of the lie, but the society will be given this this grand lie about who they are and what's going on so as to ensure the collective harmony, so as to conserve it. And what's interesting about Le Guin's um, piece, and as you note, there is no noble lie here, right? Everybody's aware of the child of what's going on. Um, whether they've seen the child or not, they all know that uh, their happiness is contingent on that child suffering and not letting them, uh, not letting that child leave the suffering, right? And that's what's one thing that strikes me about this story. In that regard, is Platonically speaking, I would be tempted to analyze our society through the lies we're told. But what I see Likwen doing is saying, no, 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 what if we're not actually told lies? What if we see what's going on all along? What if we actually know?
5: Um, I'd like to expand on uh, some of Alyosha's earlier points, because I think we can take this Foucauldian analysis further. Um, I'm reminded of, for example, biopower uh, and um, that concept seems relevant here. Um, in old societies um, societies of sovereign uh, sovereignty, um, the king usually um, justified his political power by saying that he had a right. But now um, when an authority uh, wants to justify their political power, they usually justify it on the basis of biological health and biological strength. Um, And uh, these um, biological claims are usually made on the basis of um, claims of normality. And, of course, when you... um, say um, that um, a certain type of behavior is normal, then um, you're leaving out uh, by the nature of this statement that you're making a certain group of people who you consider to be uh, non-normal. For example, uh, I think there was a debate in uh, the United Kingdom about this, um, the NHS. Some people um, wanted to, Um, prioritise norm... Well, how can I say this? Um, Basically, there was a debate about fat people, and um, many people said um, people who are overweight or obese have done that to themselves, so we should prioritize other people over fat people because they uh, they harmed themselves um, they shouldn't be prioritized they should they shouldn't be given proper health care yeah philosophy back, actually has a video on that yeah oh yeah uh, sure and this sort of utilitarian calculus rationality seems to be everywhere in society and it also ties into mark fisher's ideas about um the depoliticization of uh, mental health Uh, this type of thinking and blaming people for their own um, actions and totally um, ignoring the social context in which these things happen um, are then uh, internalized in a panoptic sense. And um, like um, what Ken said earlier, um, they also appear in interpersonal relationships.
0: Yeah, I'll say this is one thing I'm wondering about too is like, because you mentioned um, in your examples and with the Mark Fisher that. There seems to be a way in which people will argue, and we have to wonder if, like it's, a, you know, if it's a good faith argument, uh, despite how we might feel about it. Right? Did those people do that to themselves? And in this way, like what strikes me about Le Guin here, because, like I said, to me that sounds like the noble lie kind of thing again. What strikes me about Le Guin's society is that this is at least a society that, yes, they do hide the child. Um, and they do have somebody like, uh, kicking the child to wake them up in that, but they're all aware of it. They all know this. They can go see the child. Like there seems to at least be a visibility of it all. And like it's a, a kind of recognition, like you said earlier, that this inspires the, the parents to be better parents and <laughs> treat their children, uh, better, which again is terribly ironic, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's sad that that's what one would need but nonetheless what strikes me there is that this contrast between like capitalist realism and a kind of like uh kind of like how you're suggesting there's a way that that colors how the situation gets presented or how the arguments will be made and all that and we might say they're detached from a kind of reality or reinforcing one um otherwise but Oh, um, omalas doesn't seem to have that to me, or or maybe you disagree, but um, it seems to me that they oddly enough they're all well aware of this and like you know they do their part not to make the child happy they do their part to to be aware of this, which is an interesting like juxtaposition here. Yeah, and, and like you said, the Child, like they don't think the child did anything wrong. they're, they're even Omelas at their at this level of this kind of like uh, social contract of suffering for this child, still seems to be reaching a point that I don't think we always reach um, in contemporary societies, where at least it's you know even though this child is excluded from the discourse, at least it's talked about. At least it's known. Could you expand on that point, Alyosha? That that sounds like what I'm, I'm getting at.
2: Well, I guess all, I'm, all I was saying in the chat was, you know, it, it's, it is kind of interesting how, and maybe this gets into capitalist realism as well, but, you know, the, the kind of world order that people in Western Europe and the U.S. in particular, Australia, New Zealand, maybe you can add in these honorary first world countries, there's a kind of post-World War II, very short, but very particular experience of prosperity that has kind of led people to believe that there's a certain way that the world is fundamentally stable and that there might be sort of problems here and there. But that fundamentally, it's something that you know society is about people coming together on some level, whether you're a harsh you know, liberal conservative or you're on the other side of the spectrum there's still, there were, for a long time at least, there was an idea of like liberal statehood and the responsibilities of the state, all that good stuff. And I think it all kind of forgets that for many people in the world and also in, in these countries' own histories, you know, like it, it is a luxury to be in the kind of post-Jim Crow era and and imagine that, you know, race is about just like representation or something, when in reality we know it's about, you know, police violence and poverty and things like that. But There was also a time in the United States and other countries as well where that kind of like racial segregation wasn't even it wasn't something you could ignore. You know, there's a famous picture of the Atlantic boardwalk, I believe. uh, Sorry, in Atlanta, boardwalk in Atlanta of uh, white customers being literally carried on the back of uh, these black porters who used to walk up and down the boardwalks to to literally carry people in like sedan chairs, almost like almost in colonial style, like you'd see in pictures of India and stuff like that. And I think because that stuff feels like a relic of the past in a way, I'm hoping I'm I'm not making this too grandiose, but it feels like, Oh, this kind of, you know, that kind of very explicit racial subordination is that we don't do that now in certain countries that you, you can kind of imagine this as this kind of vague, thought experiment but i think for many countries history and even into the present you know we I, I mentioned in the chat palestine you know even post-apartheid south africa is you know there's a lot of writing about how you know, there's still huge inequalities there just that it, i i feel like i guess the point i'm trying to make here is that it, it is a point of um, a place of luxury to be able to say that those that this kind of suffering isn't visible i guess that's what i'm saying because for large amounts of human history and even human present, that kind of suffering is incredibly visible and 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 just there and and apparent, and you still have to walk past it every day and and choose to ignore it or choose to rationalize it, or perhaps feel powerless and do nothing about it. You know, I, I've been listening to some podcasts just to because I study Arabic about Lebanon, and just you know learning about refugee camps in Lebanon, like some some of these people are from. You know, 1948, Palestinians have been living in Lebanon in refugee camps for like 60, 70 years. You know, these, these are their conditions that don't necessarily, um, like I said, I, th- I think the point and I'll end here is that, is that I'm just trying to get at the, the idea that even suffering is something that isn't apparent or obvious to us. And it's hidden is itself kind of like a bourgeois fiction, I feel like, because the reality for a large swaths of humanity, even today in the United States, for example, is that it is very, very obvious. You live in major cities. You know, I, I experienced that in Chicago and other places. Yeah.
0: And it does speak to the retrospective nature of this test too, where we're looking back on this, um, on Omalas. But I really appreciate those examples and uh, the, the personal connection there. So, um, a discussion. No, it did. I did. Alyosha was great. Seriously, um, a discussion cropped up in the chat about about the child, right, and what to make of the child and how um, its place in society. Uh, does anyone want to share what what they're thinking about that?
1: So the question popped up whether or not the child was born defective, quote, in the language of the text, right? Uh, That's, I think, the exact words that Le Guin uses. Or if they're made defective by, you know, years of abuse from a very young age. And then the sort of question became, does that even matter? And why don't we have an answer? And what is the... uh, what possible first instances of abuse could there be? And how would that affect the way we think about the child? So like for me, I was like, well, the child was made that way because they were abused, right? That was my first reaction. But Ken pointed out that, well, actually, it's more complicated than that. And so now I'm having to think, well, how much does it matter? And I'm not sure I know the answer.
3: I can't answer. I don't know if I can answer the question. It matters at all, but what I think it's relevant to is how a structure like this uh, chooses its scapegoat, um, or creates its scapegoat. Like, um, like, uh, does it just not matter? Could absolutely any person be this? Uh, this, I don't know. Um, pedestal or whatever, or um, or do you pick on uh, people who would easily fit this? Um, I don't know this purpose. Um, and I don't know is it is it just a a chance phenomenon or do people pick on? Particularly vulnerable peoples and groups to uh, prop themselves up. I think maybe that's the question.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think I, I think you're right. I think it's about. Maybe there are these things that these things that make people, you know, vulnerable, right? Maybe they're pre-existing and maybe they're not. But I think Le Guin is sort of directing our attention to the fact that it's constructed, right? That these vulnerabilities are don't exist in a vacuum, that they're part of that network of society. And then that gets to your point about like whether or not this is arbitrary and could it happen to anyone. And I'm not sure what the text has to say to that and I'm not sure if there if it's purposely something unsatisfying uh or if it's something we're meant to sort of, you know, chew on with this text because I'm reminded about the quote that Begum said earlier, right? Uh, the the people of Obelos are are you know aren't simple. You know, they have their reasons for being happy. Uh, do we need reasons for this sort of construction if we accept it as being sort of artificial? You
0: know, one thing we can do here, because the narrator leaves us both, in a, it leaves us with like an unanswered question, right? So we can ask, what does that question do? And I think in some ways it kind of anticipates what Ken said, uh, does it matter? But we can also say, I think in a way, what Le Guin is anticipating here is the need to justify um, or define justification here, right? Would we feel better about this child's situation if it was born defective, right? Um, And I think we kind of know what she's talking about in our society, right? If if someone's born that way, kind of like Muskie was saying, does it make it easier to um, to use Kent's word, scapegoat them to, you know, to kind of change our ethical engagement on the flip side? If they were chosen, uh, somebody made the point uh, during the week, if they were chosen, maybe we should valorize them, right? Enabling everybody's happiness, which I don't think um, I don't think quite happens in this story. But I would say that's kind of what I think LeQuin is really anticipating and mastering in the story. Is it almost anticipates every? Yeah, but it's part of the social contract, right? Or yeah, but it's an obligation.
1: It, what you said is really interesting because I didn't. I don't. I think there was something about uh, the way you characterize her anticipating this that I didn't catch right when we started this conversation that I, I that i think you're right i think she knew that someone like me would come along right and i'm i'm sure that i'm not the only like uh, other people i'm sure feel kind of unsatisfied that there's not really a good reason presented in the text why this child is being abused she anticipated that and sort of purposely left aside the justification as a sort of as to, in order to like deepen her commentary on like the way that this pain is sort of part of that social contract.
2: Isn't that kind of it though? I mean, again, I, I'm just grab bag, you know, armchair theorizing here, but I'm thinking about like Camus and the myth of Sisyphus and writing about like the arbitrariness, like what, once you realize, cause that, that, I think in a sense it is. And one of the shocks I think of like realizing how unjust and fucked up our world is, is when you look at it and you realize at its core, like th- this form of prejudice or this form of suffering or this kind of oppression, this form of violence is fundamentally sort of arbitrary. You know, it doesn't need to happen or it doesn't it doesn't need to happen in this way. And there's nothing necessarily special about this group of people that means they earned their suffering or that they earned their lot. And that's almost like the brazenness of it, that it doesn't matter whether they're, you know, if the child was defective, for example, I mean, you know, if the Nazis and reactionary group used eugenics and social Darwinist logic to justify what they were doing, well, you know, they immediately broke it afterwards. You know, they say, "Oh, it's just you know, we just want to get rid of disabled people and who aren't functional in society," and then you know, that category immediately gets expanded out to thousands of other groups. You know, from political groups to you know Roma people and everyone else. So. I think that maybe that it is important that she kept it vague because that arbitrariness is, is there. There is a kind of arbitrariness to, you know, a power when it's wielded in this particular way. That is, it's maybe kind of secret or it's open secret, and I think that that's the thing that people of omelas have had to accept that. You know, that, again, there's that passage that we we do keep skipping over where the people are upset, and the, the young people especially who come to see the child, they they are very upset by what they see. But they have to kind of slowly draw it out of themselves and tell themselves that even if they don't know who this child is, why they're there, or why they're being punished, there is this cosmic sort of like caesarean covenant thing that is guaranteeing their happiness and they need to allow it to happen. Yeah, and
0: and one thing we can do to to elucidate this is we can get deeper into the question of morality or more surface level if you like um i think contemporary philosophy prefers to get it to to rise to the surface rather than dig to the depths like Nietzsche. but uh however you like um there is this instance of the normative ethical theory here right where we've talked about utilitarianism we talked a little bit about virtue ethics and like haven't we you know, have we found the middle way right um or at least we might wonder that um we can fall back on deontology except the galiosha was saying this is part of the obligation right and even socially constructed um right if if, if all you can construct out of this is like um right this leads to the uh if anything the further obligation that you have to treat your children better right you're almost obliged to in that sense we talked about like uh, social contract theory in this way that like this society is constituted this way and it's constitutive um, for the terms and for the prolongation that this remain and like in some ways we can walk um, I always forget his name. Hero justice is fairness. Can anybody help me out here?
1: Rawls. I read it in that same class, funnily enough.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Rawls. Right? Rawls can't really help us here either because Rawls will say, "Well, all we've got to do is go behind the veil of ignorance and construct society so that if you were that disadvantaged child, uh, this wouldn't be your lot." And of course, that's not not exactly possible here. <laughs> Right, that it would, you'd have to go to a different society, which these children, uh, certain children do. So, one thing we can draw out of all this is like, I think Le Guin anticipates just about any basic normative ethical response that we would otherwise fall back on to like justify this, especially since we're looking at a society that is, you know, in many ways like, not only more advanced than ours, happier than ours, like in some ways, you know, I'm I'm almost thinking they don't have the noble eyes we do, or you know, maybe they do have a kind of um, omelasite realism to this. I'm I'm not sure. I'd want to see some some quotes on that, but um, either way, it seems like they do fall back on these ethical theories, um, in, in some way, right? Like it's interwoven in the society, whereas we probably think they are in ours. And I think that juxtaposition leaves us with the question of what do we do with these ethical theories and how do we see Le Guin, you know, what is she kind of getting at here? I'm sorry. Go ahead,
3: go ahead. I was just going to... Uh, what is she getting at here that there's a certain form of uh, collective happiness that is constructed off of the suffering of a minority like it depends on their suffering
0: well and like we said earlier too if if we want to take the Martian standpoint the majority could be in this position ironically enough um (laughs) But in in that regard, right? Because um, what what do we start to do with morality here, coming through this criticism? Um,
4: there's this passage that Aldrich talked about earlier, that where young people go home in tears, and later that passage, they say that um, it is because of the child that they are so gentle with children. So it is almost like I think Ken mentioned it earlier, compartmentalization, that this feeling exists, but uh, the way that they can keep away from that feeling is to put it on that child and because then they are like uh, free from that feeling. But they also say that they know that they, like the child, are not free. Like she says that explicitly. And because of that, they know compassion. So it is almost like the young people think that it is almost too late for them to rescue that child, that this child is tortured enough that it could not be fully happy if they would bring to the daylight. So they just don't do anything and then they accept it and then they make something productive out of it. So they use that uh, anger they have about their situation and create this compassion or this like art or this beautiful city and so they like uh channel their rage towards something else and then they don't they have no rage i don't know like i don't really get the uh idea behind like how those omelas don't feel guilt so it, apparently these young people they feel something negative and is it not guilt is it like, I don't really understand, maybe they're not from Umelas until they're like adults. So this may be it, but I don't know. In
0: in my reading, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have an interesting discussion here, I actually, and this is why I go back to the noble lie, in, in my reading, I'm tempted to say that they don't feel guilt. Because they're not lying to themselves about this. Because they all, like, to me, this isn't like. Obviously, the child is being oppressed and all that, and suppressed to the right. But this isn't like the psychic social repression I see in Deleuze and Guattari, where there's like, you know, there's a way of concealing it. This is like, yes, the child is conce- is off to the side, and there is a sense of confinement and concealment. But in the way that the concealment doesn't seem to be in the sense that we're not going to recognize it either, right? Like, they actually seem to be overtly aware of this. Yeah, in some ways a loss of innocence, but also a strange acceptance, right? Like, they they seem to accept this for what it is. They don't seem to you know, and even if they are falling back on these normative ethical theories and that, like, even if you do fall back on the Benthamite principle, they don't seem to be saying the child doesn't suffer. They don't seem to be saying, you know, everything I, I, at least as I'm reading this, they don't seem to be saying what I dislike about myself is on this child. They seem to be just, like, accepting that the child must suffer for this to be prolonged and dealing with the anger at that, um, And maybe, you know, maybe the best, uh, if there is displacement, is the displacement of trying to rear children in that compassion you mentioned. But it's all in the open, right? This is not, it it seems to just be there.
1: I think that's a good read. I think it's hard to be guilty about something that you don't distance from your, Psyche by like pretending it doesn't Exist but I think that it Can be complicated because uh, Complicated by this story I mean because there are also adults Who walk away from Omelas um, So people who see this Presumably don't feel Guilty right might feel some sort of Ambient negative emotions about it But it's you know Psychically repressed I guess Until the point that it becomes guilt Again uh, later On in life
0: Yeah, and I don't... The way I'm reading this, I don't actually see this sort of psychic social repression because I always ask for people uh, to give quotes. Those are the terms. To exchange all the goodness... Here we go. To exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in Omolah for that single small improvement to throw away the happiness of thousands for the chance of the happiness of one. That would be to let guilt within the walls Indeed. Um, so you could read this like me and say like, okay, so this is the narrator being consistent with the earlier point. Um, one thing I know there is none of an omelas is guilt, or you could read it. I think more the way that some uh, is probably like more prominent in this discussion is to read it in terms of like the guilt just isn't in the society, right? It's being foreclosed.
2: But read the right before that, I mean, read the rest of the paragraph, because it says this is usually explained to children when they are between eight and 12, whenever they seem capable of understanding. Most of those who come to see the child are young people, though often enough an adult comes or comes back to see the child. That's crucial. No matter how well the matter has been explained to them, these young spectators are always shocked and sickened at the sight. They feel disgust, which they had thought themselves superior to. They feel anger, outrage, impotence, despite all the explanations. They would like to do something for the child there's nothing they can do. If the child were brought up into the sunlight out of that vile place, if it were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing indeed. But if it were done in that day and hour, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Omelas would wither and be destroyed. I mean, there's a few things in there. I think, I think she's doing it on purpose, but you know, that certainly sounds like guilt. <laughs> she's not using the word guilt, but she they feel disgust, they feel sickened, they feel anger and impotence and outrage possibly at themselves. So I think that there's... So while, while she's saying it, I think Riley at the beginning of the piece that there isn't guilt in Omelas, I think even the idea that the adults come back, that's just a one little phrase there. But the, the fact that adults do come back to see the child you know, implies that there is a form of it. But I think what she's playing with at the beginning is trying to say, you know, the, the override this isn't some kind of – I think you're right. She, she is maybe pushing against straightforward psychoanalytic interpretations of like, oh, this whole society is just repressed. She's saying that there's, you know, in many ways, because of how explicit the suffering is, people learn to make peace with it and get on with it. But there is a little nagging element that doesn't go away, clearly. And that disgust and impotence that people feel, you know, this is just the language, I guess. But among many other things, I think you could describe that as a kind of guilt. And then for the end of the paragraph, for them to say that would be to let guilt within the walls indeed. I read that almost as, again, it's sort of like wordplay of like, that would be to truly let the guilt, you know, whereas it's being held at bay, like by the, the, uh, uh, the dam of the, the, the city, you know, the outskirts of the city and its whole structures, you know, to, to let the child out would be to properly, you know, flood the city with this, with this guilt. But yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, I think I lean to Well, I think there's somewhere in between these two positions. Um, sort of, I think, I agree more with Aloysia that, you know, there is, that there is a sort of guilt. There is something, some sort of bad conscience in, in the people in Omelas that is like psychoanalytic, but maybe not as refined, right? Maybe there's a bit of that allegorical flattening going on where these people, um, well, at any rate, I guess I should just quote because the passage I was thinking about was, at the, was the very last paragraph, right? Uh, the quote goes, at times, one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or rage, does not in fact go home at all. Sometimes also a man or woman much older falls silent for a day or two and then leaves home.
0: And one thing we can say here, too, is, right, so we know that guilt is outside the walls, as um, Winterreus and Alyosha are pointing out. And there is a difficulty here because, like you you guys have both pointed out, right, there's anger and frustration, there's dismay, there's like, right, this leads to an odd sense of, like, trying to be a better parent. I almost wonder if, and I hope this isn't too semantic, but it might be worth talking about what we mean by guilt here. And because one thing I'm wondering is, is it guilt at breaking the social contract or would it be the recognition of guilt of um, having done this to this child? Right.
1: Hmm. It's tough because the first thing I was going to say was like, oh well, I definitely lean towards the latter, right? Where you can't, you can't stay in the city and be like, what we're doing to the kid is wrong. Seems to be the terms of the deal, which is you know letting in guilt, right? It's acknowledgement that lets in the guilt. At the same time, leaving the city seems to be based on a personal acknowledgement, and not on trying to assert that the like collective needs to acknowledge it. I don't know if guilt or psychic repression might even be the best words so much as just like bad conscience. It strikes me more as like that's what's going on. it's this sort of ambient feeling of being a little bit bad because of what's happening to that kid.
0: manu would you like to tell us more about uh, Dostoevsky's guilt?
6: Yeah, it's just uh, the scenario of how they're experiencing, uh, the finding out about, about this child or confronting this child reminded me of a bunch of uh, like with Brothers Karamazov or with The Idiot. It reminded me of the funny characters in it where uh, they don't actually experience guilt in the sense of feeling personally uh, responsible for uh, this the suffering or pain of um, a certain pathetic character, but that, that character is a certain pathetic character which is somehow responsible for its own uh, misery and suffering. Uh, and and it's uh, we're, we're able to dissociate from the suffering of that character uh, in a lot of places. So I'm sort of thinking of guilt in that sense and seeing that even from the beginning, I didn't actually notice it, but I just noticed as this discussion is happening, that there is actually no guilt. Uh, there is a distance uh, from the child in terms of feeling personally in that sense of that Christian guilt or feeling personally responsible or shameful for the suffering of another, which Dostoevsky keeps bringing up vaguely in his work.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges here, right, is most of the citizens don't have an active hand in in hurting the child, right? I mean, all they have to do is, certain members of the society just have to feed it, right? You don't have to clean up after it. You've just got to make sure it it, it survives at a basic level of food and water. Um, And most people don't have to have a hand in that. And even the ones that do, we have to wonder like how that affects them. But I, I think your your parallel with Dostoevsky is well-founded in, in that same sense of like, if this is a guilt, right? It's a guilt at what I'm not doing rather than what I'm doing, right?
6: In fact, it's sort of like a guilt at not just what I'm not doing, but also not knowing the possibility that you can do something because it doesn't come with... So I, it doesn't seem like there is an understanding of a shared... Uh, While there is an understanding of a shared phenomenon, but I don't know if there is an understanding of a shared phenomenon or the possibility of something being done or or it being a personal responsibility, Uh, it doesn't occur. So uh, because I'm also generally reading it to uh, say something of the reader, I'm also thinking of what it does, so how we approach it. uh, suffering around us where we do not take it as a matter of personal responsibility if we were to see someone um, hurting on the street or someone um, hungry because it would so it wouldn't be a, a metaphysical sense of guilt and responsibility where I won't personally as an individual be implicated in the suffering of another uh, that there is a distance that uh, that's there that doesn't uh, need them to be responsible also
1: the sense of distance that makes sense to me right because if you can admit to yourself that this suffering is going on but that there's a distance between you and the direct cause of the suffering um, then you can it's easy for me to see how someone could sort of not feel guilt about it
0: Yeah, I wonder, too, because um, I like what you said about the the point about helplessness, too, where, you know, if there is the social contract, are the Omelocites helpless to do anything? Can they, you know, right, that would be the, the transgression, right, is to break the contract. And that seems to be like the big obligation here is not to do that.
1: Well, in a weird way, when you said, that, when you used the word transgression, it, it sort of, it felt almost like, like mm, uh, like it would parallel the sort of abuse of the child, right? To, to speak out about the child's abuse would parallel the abuse that's being done to the child because you're sort of taking that ambient awareness and turning it into a source of suffering, but not just for one person, but for everyone.
0: You know, that's one of the big things I want to focus on in our limited time, too, is um, what happiness is in this story and kind of like the moral context of it, too. But also, and I think we're really nailing in on this, can we really have this kind of happiness? Can we even have a happiness without... Because we, we saw that the omelasites know they're not free, they they don't think of themselves as fully free in the sense of no limits or no no obligations, right? Um, they recognize this one, but can they have? Can can they have? Can we have? However you like, can we have happiness? Um, accepting the suffering of others in this way, even um. Whether it's through distancing or not,
1: that reminds me about what I said earlier. Um, that like one sort of response to this could be to look at the happiness that they're having and be like, "Well, that's not real happiness because of the uh, pain that they're inflicting on that other person." Uh, but I don't, I don't know if I agree with that position. I think, I think that it's sort of the wrong path to go down to be like, well, they're not actually happy because, you know, by all accounts, they seem to be actually happy.
0: Um. And our ethical myths, you know, they they speak to this, right? Mm. Can you,
1: can you go on a little more about that?
0: Just just reminding us about what we said about like the utilitarianism would say like game on, right? You, you've, you, you've got it. You've got the ratio to a point that uh, otherwise was not thought possible. Right. Um, social contract theory, you're upholding the social contract. You know, it, it's it, it, legally speaking, there's no breach. There's no transgression. You're maintaining the obligations in terms of virtue, right? Like, even then, you've kind of got like uh, virtue ethics has that teleological notion of well-being, right? That you're by doing the golden mean, at least for Aristotle, you're um, putting out well-being, and you're uh, at least like engaging in like uh, virtue and friendship. And oddly enough, friendship is contingent on virtue, at least to have real friendship, according to Aristotle. But in that in that way, right? Our ethical theories, our ethical stories. Um, however you want to take them speak to this right
6: he's also in the uh, sorry she's also in the text making that suffering central to the happiness in some ways like that the happiness is actually drawing from the suffering of the child where uh, here in this part she writes they know that they like the child are not free you know compassion And it is the existence of the child and their knowledge of its existence that makes possible the nobility of their architecture, poignancy of their music, and the profundity of their science. too. So this happiness in some ways sort of depends on uh, when we talk about um, the poetry of or on suffering or the aesthetic of pain uh, and the morality implicit in it. like um, artists that 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 paint uh, suffering, or um, so I'm. I'm sort of thinking that the author is actually making uh, that suffering central to why there is so much richness and happiness in the uh, in this city.
1: I guess then if. Pain is suffer is central to happiness, which I agree that seems to be how Le Guin is setting it up in this story. I guess that really uh, is is about dismantling utilitarian calculus, right? The idea that you can maximize pleasure and minimize pain because if they're intricately bound up with each other, you can't affect one without, you know, seeing maybe a correlated increase in the other, right?
0: I think we want to be careful there, though, because, like I said, there's other ethical theories here that that seem to me really explicit, be it virtue. um, although you might say the virtuous are the people who walk away. But, you know, I don't know about that. But anyways, the social contract theory, justice is fairness, doesn't seem to help us here. Like, there's a way that these ethical theories seem to be. Being satisfied by the story in a way that we find dissatisfying. Um, I would say that in terms of utilitarianism, we can say that what Bentham forgot to talk about was the, the suffering behind that ratio.
2: Yeah, my only concern with saying that, because I, I was on board with you at first, Muskie, about the pain and pleasure thing, but my concern with where you took it at the end is that then it could almost, Lead into a kind of relativistic argument of like, well, if you know one always increases the other, then you know, then you could kind of loop back into saying that's why you can't mess with the child because it's always gonna, there's always gonna be someone suffering. So that's why we need this person, that we need this Christ-like figure to take it on for us. And I wonder, yeah, I wonder if there's a better way of sort of taking it in a different direction, like you were saying. So they're 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 always mixed together, but then that doesn't mean that then you resign yourself to it or you you have to justify it. Just that the act of trying to confront it is infinitely more complicated than just trying to, you know, stick it into one person. <laughs> and in reality, I, I said earlier, we, we, we keep getting stuck on the idea of the individual versus the collective, but I don't think that's what this is that they're using that allegory because it's the most kind of clear. But we, as we've been talking about that individual child can stand in for large groups of people in political context and genocides and all kinds of things like that. So it's not just about, you know, the idea of one person suffering versus everyone else's. Uh, Yeah. That's,
1: I think that's what I want to say.
0: Yeah. If anything, right. It speaks to like almost the ideal, right. At least it's, you're almost tempted to say, at least it's one person, one group, right. Um, If we maximize happiness, didn't we minimize suffering I think uh, both, uh, I think everyone in this group is catching on to this point, right? That that minimizing of suffering doesn't exactly look like a zero, right? It's not exactly a negation or um, a complete uh, absence.
6: In fact, in, in how I read it, it's not even just the absence. It's actually uh, needing that suffering to make one's work profound. So the profundity of science is actually makes me think of um, the ethical philosophical system that engages with the idea of suffering or art that engages with the idea of suffering. So it's sort of like um, that I don't feel uh, as, as a student of, let's say, ethics, I don't feel personally responsible or that sort of there is that disengaged um, disgust or outrage, but it's not guilt. And at the same time, I'm using that that suffering to make a profound science of it or, or profound music that uh, in some senses. Uh, and there is also the, the I mean, it, it's I don't know if it's indicated directly if there is Pleasure drawn out of that happiness, of that of that suffering. But um, it reminds me of Nietzsche in Genealogy when he's talking about punishment. He talks about that trivial pleasure that you draw from punishment. But I don't know if there are any direct uh, statements uh, that relate pleasure to this kind of uh, this, this kind of suffering. So even when we think about ethical systems like utilitarianism or virtue, ethics, where those profound systems of science or philosophy are sort of built on uh, suffering and a disengaged relationship with that suffering where I'm not personally responsible for changing it, but I can brood over it for years. And uh, my music or my work can be made more profound, through
0: that awareness of this suffering. Yeah, and that's why I'm a little hesitant about the absence uh, uh, here too, because I'm afraid that if we say their problem is that they don't feel guilt, or that they're just not themselves feel guilt, or they're displacing or or repressing it, we're going to miss what they're actually doing, which is in many ways accepting this, right? Um, And in that sense, like, just to read a passage about happiness. Happiness is based on a just discrimination of what is necessary. What is necessary, nor destructive, and what is destructive. So, right, this is that golden mean again. This is that middle way. Uh, In the middle category, however, that of the unnecessary but undestructive, that of comfort, luxury, exuberance, etc., the, they, the Omala sites, could perfectly well have central heating, subway trains, washing machines, and all kinds of marvelous devices not yet invented here. Floating light sources, fuelless power, a cure for the common cold, or they could have none of that. It doesn't matter. And so I, I almost wonder if this is part of the challenge of this test is I, I've feel like a certain want to be like Plato and say you're just not letting yourself go through the suffering of um, your injustice so as to become just and like uh, if you were to do that, if you were to allow yourself to feel that guilt you would do something about this Um, but then you're faced with the other guilt of um, the social contract, right? So you've got you've got these two things opposed to each other and like I think that's kind of real and I think that even comes up in debates about like minimum wage right where people will say like oh but if you if you raise the minimum wage we can't afford you know to hire as many people and that you know how's that fair right like I think there's a way that there's a structural guilt and a like And this thing we're struggling with, which is like, well, what do we do here then? Right. If we can't work with that structure, which in this case in in Omelas, you can't. What do we do?
1: Well said. It's like I'm, I'm like thinking through this text with all you and like. I just still end up with the feeling of like a question. It reminds me of that connection I saw earlier with the, like this being sort of like a Tao, right. Or like a Zen cone where it's just, it's just kind of there to break your brain for a second, (laughs) which is, I mean, it's good. It's satisfying. I mean that as a compliment. It's, it's amazing to me that she's produced something that like is useful. And I feel like describes a lot of political realities, but that I don't know how to, Resolve.
0: Well, I think the last thing we can do, and I think this is um, something we've probably been itching to get out. I've heard it a few times. So now that we've talked about like these ethical theories and they're like the way that they would seem to like you would appeal to them and they would seem to actually support this kind of thing. To a large degree, right? They don't help us deal with the, the suffering of the child, which seems to be the major moral problem for us as the reader, looking back on the society, um, having gone through that problem, right? And as Muskie said, like having having felt like our brains are broke, or maybe like our our sense of morality is really challenged here. Um, what do we make? of the people who, of the, the eponymous people, right? The people who walk away from Oma, uh, How, what did you guys make of that? Uh,
1: I, I feel like I only have like an unsatisfying personal answer, but, um, I will give it for the advancement of the process, uh, so I think Jackie, you said that like the uh, that that there's a temptation to like call these people virtuous because they walk away, and I I see why you called it like uh, I I don't know I don't remember how you phrased it exactly, but the way you said it made me think like well maybe we should be careful calling them virtuous, and I agree with that because I don't I don't really think virtuous is the right word right because to me the people who are living in this society right are by that society standards, the virtuous ones. Um, at any rate, I don't want to get too sidebarred by like what's virtuous and what's not. Um, I guess I bring it up because it's like, I'm not, I don't think that they're virtuous. I don't think that they're better or worse. Um, mostly what they reminded me of is, is, the kind of like the, the sort of, I guess it's connected back to like the and Guattari for me. Right. That sort of, in that other reading, we're talking about this like tendency towards deterritorialization and 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 decoding and becoming becoming you know being becoming right and and that's more what those people reminded me of that they are sort of the they're sort of like uh, exploring something beyond that and it's maybe not better or worse it's just a movement away from. <laughs>
0: Let me read the passage. First of all, nicely said, um, I am wondering, like if, if we go on the Omela sites model, right? And we call them virtuous, it's not going to be virtuous by the way that the, um, the society has constructed it. Um, so at the end of the story, Le Guin writes, now do you believe in them? Are they not more credible? But there is one more thing to tell, and this is quite incredible. At times, one of the adolescent girls or boys who goes to see the child does not go home to weep or rage, does not in fact go home at all. Sometimes also a man or woman much older falls silent for a day or two and then leaves home. These people go out into the street and walk down the street alone. They keep walking and watch walk straight out of the city of Omelas. the beautiful gates they keep walking across the farmlands of omelas each one goes alone youth or girl man or woman night falls the traveler must pass down village streets between the houses with yellow lit windows and on out into the darkness of the fields each alone they go west or north toward the mountains they go on they leave omelas they walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist, but they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from all of us.
2: Hey, that makes me think of a Derrida a quote I always like to quote out of context.
0: and I don't, I don't
2: remember which one it was from either, but this. He says, uh, decisions are made in the darkness of knowledge. Now, I always like that. Um, that yeah, you know, the point being that any true act of decision of deciding to do something in the world isn't something that can be done sort of with like a preset list of ideologies or beliefs, sets of beliefs, a creed of some kind, or a program that you can just lay out and apply into the world. But that every act of decision is a kind of radical break with what is.
0: the fireworks going off is appropriate there. So I like what you're saying there. I I love the derivative quote. Um, I actually hadn't heard heard that one, but um, I think you're right. These, they don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing will do. They don't know a lot. It, it actually reminds me of that uh, Foucault quote. Frequently, oh gosh, people know what they do, and frequently they know why they do what they do. But just as often, they do not know what they they do not know what they do will do. Just to say, like, right, it's that same question of knowledge there, Um, whether it's the structural aspect or, and I think as Alyosha's is pointing out, like, maybe there's a way that these ethical theories, having constructed this knowledge of what is ethical, take us away from our, our, um, where we find ourselves, where we don't know what we, where we don't know what our actions will do. So I guess in that sense, I would suggest, like like, like Alyosha's talked about with Derrida, there's a way that knowledge seems to be um, sort of like away from us, right? We're in the dark of it. One thing that I think is interesting here is, like, in terms of ethics, we can appeal to these normative theories and, like, the, um, the sort of... Uh, epistemic index of them, right? The way that we know things through them. But in the same way, right, like we still have to do our actions. We still have to act for ourselves, right? And that seems to be the challenge of the story is like if all those theories would fall back on this society being okay and we don't feel it's okay, there seems to be an inherent problem there.
6: Actually, uh, <clears throat> reminds me of another text, uh, which is um, which I read recently, which is Mark Fisher's. Uh, I'm forgetting anti. I'm forgetting the the name of the text, but where one of the chapters is, it's actually easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Uh, strangely, because it sort of challenges the notion of the possibility of us uh, even being able to imagine. Uh, what the world outside of, of what it is looks like, where suffering is implicit, where suffering is necessary or unavoidable um, so it reminds me of that somehow that there is a, there is a certain political impotency where, where and, and none of these people are able to really do anything about it even though they are starkly aware of it in some ways, and then where? But the the author here is is explicitly saying that there are people who walk out or do not participate anymore. But what they do instead is even it's it's you can't even imagine what that could be.
0: I think that's actually a fantastic way to consider it too, because it. We don't know if what they're doing is better. We don't know if what they're going to do or where they're going gets out of this problem, right, in, in the West, at least in, in the U.S. There's often this idea that leaving the society means giving up uh, your voice in it. Right. So uh, if, if things are socially constructed, there should be a way to have your voice there. Um, obviously, we know it's a lot more complicated than that. We, we don't quite have the carnival of voices that we otherwise uh, would like to. But there is that idea that if you leave, you're giving up being part of the solution. Um, but I think, Manu, what you just said is, is spot on in the sense that what seems to be going on here is like Le Guin seems to be leaving us with whatever's... God, whatever, we're, if we want to be like these people who walk away, we're not going to know where we're going, right? We're not going to know if these ethical theories can be reformulated, right? Like, this isn't a problem or a question of knowledge, per se.
6: But it is the case for all the participants in this story that uh, that there is absolutely no possibility or alternative imaginable uh, for those who stay also and for those who leave uh, there, is the, 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 there is there is that notion of it that it could be there but, uh, but we don't know what it is at all. It's, it, it evades our imagination uh, everywhere for all kinds of participants.
0: Yeah, and the the guilt that would come with breaking the social contract, or this reminds me of, um, since you mentioned Nietzsche, this reminds me of Nietzsche talking about there's this way in which for morality to transgress morality, whether it's your personal morality, transgressing social morality or something there about. For that to happen, there's facing the unethical which in this case is, right, the unethical is um, arguably the ethical here, right? It's it's very paradoxical in that regard, where it's, you know, it's not so simple as, like, um, being able to appeal to something here. And I I think that might be a good place to leave this, because I don't know if, if Le Guin really gives us a a resolution here, um, if anything, right? I, I think she's like Foucault and them who don't want to tell us what to do in case we fall back in the same kind of knowledge problem. Like we've kind of got to figure this out for ourselves, right? And if that means leaving, it means, if anything, getting out of the social context, where I think, um, you know, if anything, right? Like we could say that these, uh, the ones that are leaving are leaving to where guilt is outside the city. Uh, In the same way, we might say that if we're going to have morality, there's a way that our responsibility in that requires us or at least should, um, perhaps, I shouldn't say requires if we're going to have morality of this kind of degree where um, the suffering of a child for the, the good of the rest is something that perturbs us, something that we find morally wrong, then it may be that we've got to get out of this context so as to even see it wrong in the first place or to, to do that departing. Uh, but I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think there's to agree, disagree? Maybe you see, maybe you do see a resolution here. Well with that, I'll, I'll fall back on my point about like if anything right, if these ethical theories have any relevancy, it's got to be in the way that we're we're living them not in the way that they that we appeal to them to like so that they look down on our actions, right And then like we can just kind of say what's good or bad from that. I saw you typing in the chat. Did you want to give us our closing word, or maybe some some last remarks in a less like um, in a less dramatic sense?
4: <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't really have anything dramatic to say. I kind of missed the question beginning of the question. I was just going to ask you the full question if it is possible. <laughs>
0: Oh sure, yeah. I was questioning if, um, you know, kind of what we do with this ending.
4: Oh okay. I actually have more questions regarding that. Like they were talking about this festivals. Like there is like this coming in and coming out of Amelas. Like why the guns are like fully gone. Like why the ending of those people are so dramatic. Like I feel like it is like maybe a shift in the head that they cannot return. Even if they return to MLS, it would not be the same OMLS. So they can never fully return in that sense, maybe
0: I think that's a good point, right? And if if the gongs are meant to bring people into the city, right? The ones who have walked away from Omalas I don't think we'll be coming back. And in that way, maybe there's an appeal to bring them back. Um, Or maybe this is just the celebration, right? And wherever they are in the mountains, they won't hear it. I think you're right though. Those are really the two major movements we see is like the people going to the party for the festival, the people moving to um, feed the child and and kick it so as to get it to stand up, Um, the people going to visit the child at various times and then the departure out of the city.
4: Yeah, I wonder why they have to go. Like, no, um, is it like this inner feeling that they cannot? Is it that they cannot stand to go, or they can? Um, I don't know. I, are they like the danger to society as a whole as well? I, and they could they have stayed if they wanted to, with acknowledging that this is not how it should be.
0: Yeah, I mean that, that's definitely the question, right? Because even the description of the ones who walk away from Omelas is that they walk away in dark, right? So night falls. The traveler must pass down the village streets between the houses with yellow lit windows, and out into the darkness of the fields, right? This is literally leaving the social, and in the in the in in, in darkness into darkness, and seeing it as you're passing by, right? Seeing what you're walking out of.
6: I mean, if I'm thinking about it dramatically, it just, uh, (laughs) there is this, um, when you look at um, philosophy of pessimism, there is this author that I came across once uh, called Carlo Michael Steader, who... um, committed suicide after completing his, uh, treatise on the human condition. Uh, so he, I think he became, um, extremely preoccupied with, uh, uh, with, with human suffering and he wrote his, um, thesis on it and then killed himself. So, you in know, in if I have to think about it in a very dramatic way, I'm thinking of that silence and leaving that sense because his, um, work sort of indicated that there is absolutely no possibility out of human suffering which is what a lot of philosophy of pessimism does that it is a very radical pessimistic view of the human condition where there is no because there is no possibility the only possibility is to simply leave and leave in the sense of of dying Uh, uh, and so that's the most dramatic end to which I'm taking this uh, conclusion
4: of the story. Um, it is interesting because uh, she in the answer, said, that uh, this place is even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist, but they seem to know where they are going. So yeah it may be the maybe the possibility of afterlife or not but they should know to know where they are going. You
0: yeah, know in some ways it reminds me of even this discussion because like I think we all have a way of at least a lot of us were saying right there's something wrong here right and there's this this want to do something about the child suffering and that You know, and um, obviously this is a very difficult deal to turn down, right? Um, And I I think it's meant to be that difficult because that really is, I think, one of the challenges here is like, you know, saying no to like the near utopia, near, um, you know, this kind of like. Un, uh, unrelenting happiness, as though it's like a, a pool you just live in. But in the same vein, I wonder if, too, kind of the way that, like, I think we've disagreed with each other in here, um, you know, uh, on what's going on. And, and that's cool, actually. I've really enjoyed those disagreements uh, as much as I've enjoyed the agreements. But I wonder if that's kind of the thing too, though, is like, I think we all probably would agree that there's an, a huge ethical problem with doing this to the child. And in that way, I don't think we know where we're going in terms of what we would do or that. But I think like Le Guin's suggestion here is that it's important that you you start taking those actions so as to at least get out of that social context where you're just okay with us, right? Or you're just allowing it. And that might mean leaving a lot behind, right? Leaving your neighbors behind in some sense, right? That like we could read this more symbolically of like social ostracism.
4: There is this quote um, where Le says that about these young people who just first saw this person, this child. Their tears at the bitter injustice dry when they begin to perceive the terrible justice of reality and to accept it. So, this shift of perspective, I guess, or like uh, accepting the reality is terrible or reality is hard to accept, and that. Um, life is with suffering and it cannot be without and then it is like this maybe an instinct to say that oh maybe if there is this suffering in this world maybe I can uh, put it onto someone and then not have to suffer myself if it equals to the same amount in total
0: You know, I'm really glad you bring up that quote because um, it is interesting, right? Like they realize the justness of the world, right? Which is, you know, I, I think at least to me, it's just not satisfying, right? Like it's like you know, again with that social context, this like. If all this stuff works that way, and it leads to this, is that the justness of the world as it should be? Or is that as it is?
4: I mean, they, most of those people are born into an already constructed society. So most for most of them, it is like as it is. Because they are thinking that this, if they release this child... First, the child will not be as happy as they are because this child was very tortured for years and now cannot uh, find satisfaction as these people are. So they deserve this more. There's like that kind of a passage. And the second is that this child, which is insufficient in, in his happiness, in his experience of happiness, if we release um, that child, there will be no benefit to us and there will be things that are worse. This is like we don't really see this happening because everybody's like really afraid of it happening. So we don't really get to uh, know that we verif- 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 get the, this uh, thought verificated. So I don't know. So it is like kind of learned
0: yeah and that is kind of the construction of it right is yeah I suppose we've got to end this but I think you're right that is it is learned right it is something that we were born into and in that sense right like whether it's a physical departure or like a departure at a moral level or at a knowledge level right it doesn't mean knowledge is off the table but it means that I think these, these ethical theories as they're known here right where like We want to be utilitarian and we know the ethical. It means this in in practice, we've got, you know, we've got a problem. Um, But I think you're right. There is a way of dealing with what you're born into, what you're raised with and all that, and then, like, actually um, experiencing it and, and, you know, like uh, if you're faced with that as the justness of the world or not, Is it what you, is it what justness should be in this regard, or is it just um, what you're supposed to accept as justness? uh, With that, Manu, Bigam, do either of you want to... uh, some final thoughts on the test. I'm thinking that's a no. And we've given so many already. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird place, right? Like, is it pessimism or, you know, is there is there an optimism in not knowing, you know, in a weird way? Or at least is there at least the potentiality, even though we don't know where we're going, it seems like. At least we're going somewhere else. Um, and I think that's kind of the... The biting aspect of this that doesn't make this idealistic by any means, or at least doesn't make this idealistic in the sense that everything would just work out. <laughs> this seems to be a commitment to like uh, ideals in that regard. Yeah, if anything, it's a social death, right? It's, it's death of... Uh, social self, if you like, or like a super ego. But um, there's no final remarks, we'll close. Um, so thank you all for joining us for this session of quarantine literature's discussion and reading of Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omaha's, which hopefully I've pronounced correctly.
4: Thank you. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you both. You're very insightful. I I really enjoyed your um, both of your insights into the test and into, you know, um, both like uh, Dostoevsky and the poets, but also the the quotes you guys brought up and the the aspect of learning and um, I really feel yeah, like we yeah. go deeper into it.
6: Yeah, I'm definitely going to be thinking of these thinkers. I'm going to be thinking of how Dostoevsky, because I think Dostoevsky is, is, is an optimist also, and he offers uh, possibilities to a way out uh, in the form of... Um, this is a certain sense of radical guilt or uh, Nietzsche is doing, I think uh, Nietzsche also when you think about it is also an optimist, he brings it up uh, in the form of that, that notion of the Ubermensch he, he is he's optimistic about the possibility of us overcoming a situation like that or I think someone was mentioning Kierkegaard also who uh, offers that through the leap of faith so uh, i think i'm going to be thinking of uh those um, philosophers who engage with the idea of how imagine the possibility outside of or for overcoming that
0: yeah and that is the challenge of enunciation right is like you know, like you could be Wittgensteinian about and say like what we don't have words for, we have to pass over. But in a weird way, this seems to be more like we're passing over what we do have words for. Um, and in that way, like, I don't know if she's pessimistic or optimistic, but I think at least one common thread in the thinkers you mentioned, um, although I'm not familiar with Dostoevsky's radical guilt, um, please don't tell anybody. No. <laughs> um, anyways, although I'm not familiar with that part, is that they do seem to be trying to deal with the social context of of these things. Um, you know, whether or not they're using the word social construction, the way it's socially constructed, and being born into it and what departure from that can actually occur. And it takes us right back to Begum's point about like, you know, learning all this stuff, being born into it.